This is an ABC podcast. This is a rubber ball. No, not that kind of rubber ball. This rubber ball claims to be a miracle cure. Back in 1890, it was the product for curing. Influenza, coughs, cold in the head, cold on the chest, catarrh, asthma, bronchitis, sore throat, hoarseness, throat deafness, loss of voice, laryngitis, snoring, sore eyes, diphtheria, whooping cough, neuralgia, headaches. But this ball isn't just an apparently miraculous invention. It's about to transform the law forever. I'm Associate Professor Sarah Percy from the University of Queensland, and this is an object in time for the History Listen, the series where we explore the ordinary objects at the centre of history's most fascinating stories. The year is 1889, and Mr. Frederick Augustus Rowe has just patented his miraculous rubber ball. He calls it the Carbolic Smoke Ball. It looked a little bit like an anarchist's smoke bomb, but it was filled with powdered carbolic acid, and you would hold the ball in your hand and squeeze the rubber and get a very healthy uh, nostril full of carbolic acid. This rubber ball is just one of Mr. Rowe's creations. One of the other things of the 1890s that came to light was a contraption to prevent self-abuse by horses. <laughs> I, I dread to think how that actually would have worked. That's Professor David Percy from the University of Alberta. He's also my dad. And let's just say I didn't ever expect to be discussing stallions and their dirty habits with him on national radio. You don't know how it actually yes, worked, it would, did you? No, it, it would test the imagination. Many of Rose's inventions are a little... Outside the box, shall we say? But the carbolic smoke ball is proving to be Frederick Augustus Rowe's best invention yet, thanks in part to its exceptional timing. It's winter in London, 1889. Across the city, a new illness is striking people down. The Russian flu is the first big influenza outbreak to hit the city in over 40 years. People were terrified. The so-called Russian flu was, was certainly the biggest influenza pandemic of the 19th century. It spread rapidly from east to west, at least in the northern hemisphere, across Europe. And it made its way across France, moving east, west, north and south, and quickly arrived in, uh, in Britain in December 1889. And the reason why it was named the Russian flu, there was speculation that it, it started in Russia. Michael Brasselier is a medical historian from Swansea University. It induced worries and concerns among those who were involved in public health. Its impact on industry, on commerce, on daily life was significant. And as the epidemic progressed and went into second and then third waves, it also struck and eventually killed leading figures, important figures. I mean, probably the most, the most notable was Prince Albert. He was Duke of Clarence in Avondale, and he was the eldest son of the Prince of Wales. Uh, he was the grandchild of Queen Victoria. He was the second in line to the throne in England. And he caught a cold, apparently, while returning home from a funeral of a relative of his. And instead of taking bed rest, he went out for a shoot 
and by the end of the week was so ill that he missed his own 28th birthday celebrations and was then diagnosed by a royal physician as having the influenza. And six days later or so, he was seriously ill from pneumonia, so complications set in, and he was in Sandrium and died a little less than two weeks after contracting the disease. What's notable about his death is it was widely reported in the press, and it brought home to Londoners, to, to Britons, and to those around Europe that influenza was no, no laughing matter. It was deadly, and he was a young, he was, he was young and apparently healthy royal. And this began to sort of invoke worries and concerns among, not just among public health people, but also among the public. At the same time, I mean, this was an epidemic that was widely publicized. It happened in the midst of a, a major revolution in, in communication. So it was widely reported and widely covered in the press. Many people were paralyzed by fear, but some saw this as a brilliant money-making opportunity. And it was in the press that commercial drug manufacturers began to market and promote all sorts of cure-alls and protectives and medicines against the Russian flu. Um, so it involved a kind of marketing frenzy for various drugs that picked up on significant changes in medicine, particularly the recognition that infectious diseases like influenza could be caused by germs, and their medicines could address or counter the germs that cause the disease. People like Frederick Augustus Rowe, looking to cash in on the epidemic by inventing so-called cures and finding treatments, have it half right. A disinfectant like carbolic acid would kill a germ, but people don't yet know that the flu is a virus. So there's an explosion of different types of medicines that, that people turn to. Among the most common would be things that address the symptoms associated with influenza, including things like opium, quinine, and others that aim to bring down the fever. In order to protect oneself or to manage the infection, another widely recommended uh, treatment was disinfection. So gargling, sometimes with salt, sometimes with things like Listerine, which was on the market. And there's various other types of medicine to bolster the immune system, as it were. I mean, things like Balvril. So there's a whole panoply of, of different types of medications. And they're often marketed or presented as things that can both prevent and treat the disease all at once. I mean, I think it's really important to remember in the 1890s, there's no sort of universal national healthcare system. I mean, you might have visited a doctor, uh, depending on what your social class was, and doctors might have provided prescriptions or made recommendations for you. Um, but for the most part, people self-medicated. And they have self-medicated by visiting a pharmacist or a druggist or just carrying out their own sort of types of self-care. And there's no end of, of, of things that were being offered to people. Frederick Augustus Rowe's miracle carbolic smoke ball is one of these medications. It can be easily purchased and you don't need a doctor to use it. Rowe's patent application explains. When the ball or receptacle is compressed, the powder will be forced out in infinitesimally small particles resembling smoke. And what a user was meant to do with this is to take a sniff of the carbolic acid that the, the ball was diffusing in order to protect themselves 
against the flu and other types of infectious diseases. The principle of using carbolic acid obviously goes back to the work of uh, the very famous surgeon, Joseph Lister, who introduced carbolic acid as an antiseptic in surgery in the 1860s and 1865. So what the carbolic smoke ball picks up on is a long tradition of using carbolic acid as a disinfectant and as a germicide against various types of infections. The directions for using the ball are simple. Hold the ball by the loose end, snap or flip rapidly on the side of the ball on the place marked S, and a fine powder resembling smoke will arise. Inhale this smoke or powder. This will cause sneezing. And for a few moments, you will feel as if you were taking cold. This feeling will soon pass away and the cure has commenced. The reason why inhaling carbolic acid powder caused sneezing is because it's really not very good for you. In fact, doctors have been trying to ban carbolic acid since at least the 1890s. Carbolic acid was later added as a poison by the Privy Council to a prohibited substance. It probably didn't kill people, but it probably didn't help them much either. Catherine McMillan is professor of private law at King's College London. I think that probably what happened when you inhaled this smoke that you were busily puffing away using the help of the little rubber ball up your nose is that it it made you sneeze. And what little science behind this was that when one sneezed, presumably the influenza or the cold was somehow expunged. Regardless, the carbolic smoke ball didn't just claim to cure the flu. Rose advertisements claimed the ball could positively cure influenza, catarrh, asthma, bronchitis, hay fever, neuralgia, throat deafness, hoarseness, loss of voice, whooping cough, coop coughs, and all other ailments caused by taking cold. It's the miracle cure that everyone is looking for. The market is primed. All Frederick Rowe needs to do is get news of his amazing rubber ball out to the people. Luckily, he's an ideas man and has some plans up his sleeve. Mr. Rowe manages to get a bunch of 1890s influencers to endorse his product. My duties in a large public institution have brought me daily during the recent epidemic of influenza close contact with the disease. I have been perfectly free from any symptoms by having the smoke ball always handy. It has also wonderfully improved my voice for speaking and singing. Frederick Rowe is so confident that people will love the carbolic smoke ball, he's even put money on it. But the terms of the advertisement were, and I quote, 100 pound reward will be paid by the carbolic smoke ball company to any person who contracts the increasing epidemic, influenza, cold, or any diseases caused by cold after having used the ball three times daily for two weeks, according to the printed directions supplied with each ball. And this bit is important. £1,000 is deposited with the Alliance Bank Regent Street, showing our sincerity in the matter. During the last epidemic of influenza, many thousands of carbolic smoke balls were sold as preventatives against the disease, and in no ascertained case was the disease contracted by those using the carbolic smoke ball. And the ad went on to explain that you could purchase refills for the ball and where one could obtain these. 
But that was the gist of the advertisement. And what's really key about this advertisement is that the company indicates that they have banked money, that they will pay a reward if you use this ball and contract influenza, and that they have banked money, as they said, to show our sincerity in the matter. That hundred pounds, it's a clever bit of advertising. It shows people that Frederick Augustus Rose stands behind his product. A genius marketing idea. There's only one problem with it. The smoke ball doesn't actually work. This leaves Roe in a bit of a predicament. It's only a matter of time before someone is going to try and claim the hundred pounds that's been promised. Ah, well, Mrs. Louisa Elizabeth Carlyle was one of the people who bought a smoke ball, and she used it uh, three times a week for two months and then caught influenza. So she looked at the advertisement and said, well, I've got the flu, but I'm also entitled to 100 pounds. So she asked the smoke ball company to pay up uh, in accordance with the terms of its advertisement. But 100 pounds is a lot of money, and the Carbolic Smoke Ball Company don't actually want to pay out. They reply that in order to get the reward, you actually have to use the ball under their supervision inside their office. At this point, Mr. Carlyle enters the proceedings. He's especially incensed that the Carbolic Smokeball Company is not honouring its promises. Seeing your offer of a reward dated July the 20th in the Pall Mall Gazette of November the 13th, my wife purchased one of your smoke balls and has used it three times a day since the beginning of December. She was, however, attacked by influenza. Dr. Robertson of West Dulwich attended and will no doubt be able to certify the matter. I think it right to give you notice of this and shall be prepared to answer any inquiry or furnish any evidence you require. I am yours obediently, J.B. Carlyle. Now, he, he sends this letter and, and nothing happens. And he, he writes again and he tells them that he will place the matter in the hands of his solicitors. And this results in, in some correspondence. He just gets a postcard back from the carbolic smoke ball saying, your, your matter will receive our attention. He doesn't hear anything further and he writes again. And this time he received a, a reply, which is just sort of a standard form reply to say that, Actually, the Carbolic Smokeball Company has now been inundated by false claims. And so consequently, if you're going to make a claim, you need to use the ball on their premises and that these will be supervised. This undoubtedly irritated Mr. Carlyle, who wrote back again. And at this point, he received a reply from Frederick Augustus Rowe to say that his company considered his letter impertinent and gave him the names of his solicitors. And the end result is that Mr. Carlyle commences an action. Well, the action is actually commenced by his wife, but it seems fairly certain that Mr. Carlyle is the driving force behind this. £100 isn't an insignificant amount, about £1,400 or about $2,300 today. But actually, it's a pittance compared to the amount of money both sides are willing to spend on their legal costs. They were obviously very well off because each team had three lawyers in this action for £100. And the smokeball company did what the tech giants do today. They hired the best and the brightest. So their lead barrister was H.H. Asquith, who subsequently became prime minister from 1908 to 1914. Uh, So he was chief counsel at trial. He couldn't participate 
on appeal because by then he'd been appointed Home Secretary. So they had a different uh, council come in for the appeal. The Carlyles are committed. They want to see the Carbolic Smoke Ball Company brought to justice. I think the ball was actually probably extremely unpleasant to use. And, and the thought of blowing what we now know to be a toxin up your nose three times a day couldn't have been any fun. And I think that having endured this, I suspect that what then happened is that when her husband began to sort of press her cause, as it were, and write to the manufacturers of these medicines and simply receive at the outset no reply at all, then sort of standard form replies, and then this just sort of rebuff, you know, go away. I think that it's the, it's the inconvenience and probably the unpleasantness of using the ball combined with the hostile reaction that they receive from the Carbolic Smoke Ball Company, and so they sue. And so I think it's one of these matters that, although the original, one might think it was looking for the reward, in fact, I think by the time it reaches the courts, it's actually a point of principle that, that the Carlills have decided this company isn't going to get away with it. The whole thing was really unpleasant. We want some sort of redress. The Carlills are ready to sue. Mrs. Carlyle's lawyers put forward that the Carbolic Smokeball Company's decision to offer that reward actually amounted to a contract. Erica Chamberlain is dean of the law school at Western University in Canada. They had argued that there was a contract, essentially, that the Carbolic Smokeball Company had made an offer of £100 to anyone who used the product and ended up coming down with a flu, and that Mrs. Carlyle had, you know, duly fulfilled her her end of the, the contract, essentially, and had taken the smoke ball and come down with a flu. So they had basically accepted the offer, and now we're coming to collect on the condition. The Carlills, the Carbolic Smokeball Company, and all those expensive lawyers arrive in the courtroom. Well, the trial at first instance was conducted by Justice Henry Hawkins, who himself was a very straightforward person, and he was an interesting judge because he sat with a Jack Russell Terrier uh, for all of his cases. The Jack Russell Terrier was imaginatively called Jack, and it sat on the judge's desk. And he used to say, well, if a witness isn't telling the truth, Jack will bark. Whether or not that was effective or not, I'm sure it discouraged witnesses from, uh, from not telling the truth. So by today's standards, it was a rather odd scene to find the judge and Jack the Terrier uh, deciding a case for you. Justice Hawkins and his dog Jack listened to the Carbolic Smokeball Company field a wide range of arguments to explain why they shouldn't need to pay Mrs. Carlyle her money. They did, as you mentioned, have a number of fanciful arguments. They said, well, how do we know that Mrs. Carlyle and the, any other users had followed the instructions and had used the smoke ball as directed? So the court's attitude, well, it was this, this is a matter of evidence. But if a person chooses to make an extraordinary promise, they do so because it benefits them. And there's no reason not to enforce the promise just because it's extravagant. They're very short with the uh, efforts of the Smokeball Company to evade liability. And the Smokeball Company seemed to raise some fairly desperate arguments. They said, well, you can't make an offer of a contract to the whole world court said, oh, yes, you can. For example, if you offer a reward to anyone who finds and returns your lost dog, you've contracted with them, you've made the offer to the world, and one person has accepted by returning the lost dog. 
So they sort of blew that out of the water very quickly. And then I, I think the, the funniest one was Asquith at trial tried to argue the whole thing was a wager or a bet. Well, in those days, wagers were not legally enforceable. So his argument was saying um, the equivalent of this was I will bet you 100 pounds against your 50 pence that you will not get influenza. At which point, Justice Hawkins, who is a keen horse racing fan, jumped in and said, oh, you mean the odds were 200 to 1, thus showing his uh, rather raffish background as a fan of prize fighting and of horse racing. Justice Henry Hawkins and Jack the Jack Russell decide that the Carlyles are correct. Mrs. Louisa Carlyle should receive her 100 pounds because the carbolic smoke ball didn't stop her from getting the flu. The court found that the newspaper advertisement amounted to an offer that could be accepted if Mrs. Carlyle used the smoke ball three times a day for two weeks according to the directions. And in the event that she caught influenza while doing that, that she was protected. And if she did catch influenza, then the company's promise to pay £100 became operative. But the case isn't over just yet. Once the Carlos win their case, Frederick Rowe and the Carbolic Smokeball Company decide to appeal. Our rubber ball is taken to the Court of Appeal, and that £100 promise again forms the focus. Well, the first one, of course, is they said, well, this is just puffing up the product. We're not really intending to be bound by it. It's just an ordinary advertisement, and you can't sue because of errors in an ordinary advertisement. Well, Justice Hawkins said, there's another clause in this advertisement which you're forgetting about, counsel. It says that just to show our sincerity in this matter, we have deposited the sum of £1,000 in the Alliance Bank on Regent Street to show that we're really serious about the promise we make. The Court of Appeal agree with Justice Hawkins. The Carlyles have a contract with the Carbolic Smokeball Company. The miracle rubber ball didn't work, and so Mrs. Carlyle is owed her money. The Carbolic Smokeball Company, in both the trial and the appeal, tried every imaginable argument to help them win the case. The Court of Appeal systematically rejected every single one of them. And all of these rejected arguments really help clarify how a legal contract is made. There's really two important elements to this. The less important of these two important elements is that this case quite clearly indicates that you need, as an element in forming a contract, something that is referred to as an intention to create legal relations. That this element, an intention to create legal relations, is necessary in the formation of a contract. So this is an introduction. In in the common law, something is only law, not because a treatise writer writes about it, but because a court decides on the basis of a particular element. So this element, this doctrine, an intention to create legal relations, arrives in English contract law. The more important of the two elements, and this is undoubtedly why students study the case today, is because what this case stands for is that if you make the offer of a unilateral contract, that is to say a contract which from the outset only binds one party, if the other party performs the conditions of the offer, which have of course been made with an intention to create legal relations, a binding contract arises. And that's undoubtedly the reason why students continue to study the case today. But the case of the Carbolic Smokeball Company wasn't just about the rules of contract formation. 
It also began to explore some new territory, specifically territory about the extent to which companies were allowed to lie in advertisements. This practice was known as puff. Puffery started out before our time period, at the beginning of the 19th century, as a form of fraud. One example, um, somebody called a puffer used to go to auctions and would be paid to deliver the bids higher, to drive the bids higher and higher, not with any intention of purchasing the articles, but to get other people to bid a higher price than they otherwise would. By the time of our case here, puffery comes to stand for just sort of, you know, grandiose claims about something. You're, there used to be a very popular soft drink in the United Kingdom that it was explained was made from girders. It was an iron brew made from girders. And this is a kind of puff. It's a spin on the on the product. The example I give to students is the the washing powder that is advertised as washing whiter than white. It's just meant as a sort of inducement. And the, the sort of fraudulent elements at the time that Carlyll brings her case, there's still a tinge of fraud around puff, but it's mostly sort of an inducement, uh, an advertising or a marketing ploy to have someone purchase a product. The Carbolic Smokeball Company tried to argue that all they had been doing was to add a bit of meaningless but exciting puff to their ads. This is how we puff up our products, and it's designed to publicize the uh, product. There were no legal consequences for publishing the offer of the reward in the ad. In fact, it looks like the deceitful style of the advertisement was what really annoyed the Carlyles in the first place. After all, they probably spent quite a lot more than the £100 they were promised just on their legal fees. This case reminded advertisers that they had to be very careful to make sure that their puff was not an outright lie. The legal ramifications of the case were about contract and the rules of contract, but the long-term social impact of the case was about whether or not it was a good idea to allow advertisers to make wild claims about their products, claims that preyed on people's fears. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about this case now because, you know, you look back at the, you know, 1890s and you think, well, what a silly product this was, right? That uh, that people were sticking up their nose and puffing carbolic acid up their nose. But when you think about the kind of wellness industry that we have now, uh, we have plenty of treatments that are, I guess, equally silly looking or will be silly looking 100 years from now. And I guess with respect to the pandemic, you have um, people who you know, are scared and are desperate and want to do whatever they can to prevent themselves from getting some kind of possibly fatal disease and so, or infection. And so, you know, when people are are scared, they'll try lots of different things. And we, it seems to be that they're always going to be uh, people who take advantage of that and try to sell, I guess, the, the kind of quickest, fastest miracle cure that they can. The little rubber carbolic smoke ball was a nonsense remedy for a serious illness. But when people are afraid, they're willing to try anything to make themselves safe. And perhaps we are just as guilty today of putting our faith in unusual remedies. It doesn't change, but it gives wonderful fodder of how people can suggest the most outrageous cures for covid and saying these things work even though the veter veterinary devices use only for horses that we get exactly the same belief in things which are scientifically preposterous occurring during the course of the COVID pandemic. So it is really fun to play on the similarity between our times in our advanced 
technology world versus 1891. When we go back to the facts of Mrs. Carlyle's case, it's a pretty solid reminder that people are willing to accept almost anything when they're afraid. And the job of the law is to protect them. Which is just as well, because disease isn't going away. Mrs. Carlyle survived the Russian flu. She even survived using the Kabarlik smoke ball. And she died in her 90s. Her death certificate says the cause of her death was the flu. I'm Sarah Percy, and this was an object in time. The supervising producer is Edwina Stott, and the sound engineer is Carrie Dell. Fellow history lovers, if you, like me, enjoy your history with a side order of news, why don't you try Rear Vision? I'm Kerry Phillips, and as well as looking at the background to what's making headlines here in Australia and around the world, we dig into some of the curious and quirky things that pop up in the wave of information we all surf today. Join us for Rear Vision on your ABC Listen app.